0: Today, I've titled the sermon, Serving the Body of Christ. We'll be talking about serving the body of Christ. And I want to make a statement before I begin the sermon. Our church is a serving church, a serving body. We have people involved in some way or another in different ministries, in different ways in our church. In some churches, you have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. But not so in our church. We have 80% of the people doing, you can say, 80 to 100% of our work. If I were to ask you to raise your hand up and let me know people who are serving, I'll I'll see majority of the hands up in some way or another you are serving. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for your willingness to be an active participant in this local body. I also want to encourage those who are here week after week, but unable to serve due to whatever difficulties they may be. Um, I know some of you are not able to serve because uh, it is difficult for you physically to do that. Uh, Some of you are sick. I know some of you, uh, it's difficult for you to sleep through the night. You've come to me and expressed that to me. And so I know that. And, And so the fact that you're here this morning, that itself is an act of service. So thank you for being here. I want to encourage those of you who used to serve but now are not able to, even because of physical disability. Or whatever difficulty it is. But I want to let you know that um, you're here and God knows you. God looks at your heart and we love you. The fact that you're here. Thank you for being here with us this morning. In our passage today, in Ephesians chapter 4, we find the Apostle Paul exhorting us to minister to the body of Christ. Using the spiritual gifts that Christ has given you. The body of Christ was just the church. Bud Wilkinson was the coach of the Oklahoma Sooners when they were a football team, a powerhouse. A young reporter asked, Coach, how is the game of football Contributed to the health and fitness of America. To the reporter's shock, Wilkinson reported or responded, It has not contributed at all. What do you mean, stammered the reporter? Wilkinson said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 fans in the stadium, desperately needing some exercise. One theologian quotes, what does a layman really want? A layman is someone who is just lay person, not doing the work of the ministry. One theologian said, what does a layman really want? The response was, he wants a building which looks like a church, clergy, dressed in the way he approves services of the kind he's been used to and finally to be left alone. Folks, beloved, we have all been put here in the body of Christ with a purpose. But sometimes we forget our purpose and we get caught up in life wandering away from our purpose. If I were to ask you a question as to what is your purpose in life? What's the point of getting through school? Most of you would say to get a good job, to make enough money to do the things we want to do, whether it's getting married, whether it is finding, raising a family, whether it's sending kids off to college and then wait for them to leave home and be an empty nester, retire from your job, maybe travel around the country in your RV, visiting all the national parks, catch some fish, play some golf, eventually
1: get sick and die. Is this the purpose of life? If not, then what is the
0: purpose of your life? What are you living for? What consumes you? What preoccupies you? What are your aspirations? What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? What are your desires? Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do this? By living in submission to Him, to the Lordship of Christ, by using our spiritual gifts that He has given us to serve in the body of Christ. We are all called to minister in the church I mean, the whole congregation is called to do, to be involved in the work of the service. John McCarter, pastor, theologian, writes, When we talk about the church as a fellowship of God's people, giving their lives away for each other, he states, this is alien to some of us today. Why? It continues because we are an individualistic people. Many churches wouldn't even ask people to serve. They wouldn't even ask people to get involved. They wouldn't ask people to make sacrifices. Why? Because it might make some people uncomfortable it might raise the bar of expectation and they wouldn't want to have to be held to that level of expectation and that might send them back to the back door to a different place where they don't have such a high standard or an expectation. I paraphrase John McCarter here. He says, And to cater to such a group of self-indulgent people There are churches that accommodate exactly these kinds of people. He says these churches are like production companies offering a religious service. They provide the best in music, the best in motivating you to live out your life and send you off with a religious high. You just go to the church, you sit in a dark room, Watch the event take place. These churches are staffed by paid professionals who are financed by spectators or the attendees. Very little to nothing is expected from these spectators other than put some in the offering when the plate comes by so that the production can continue week after week. Isn't this what we see around? Is this what a church ought to be? Is this the New Testament church? No. Let us read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And this is in the context of a larger section, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. So you have to wait until next week to kind of put this all in perspective. But I hope to today give you a glimpse of what the Apostle Paul is trying to do. Begins in verse 7, But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Paul is used to this parenthetical statement, you know. He says something and then he goes off because he remembered or he got excited about something. That's what he does here in verse 8, 9, and 10. He says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying... Now the parenthesis, if you're reading from the ESV, begins in verse 9. I believe it should begin in verse 8, where it says, therefore it says. And I'll explain that in a moment. So in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And then you see, close parenthesis, and then he begins with verse 11, and he gave the apostles the prophet's the evangelists. Technically, at the end of verse 7, when he had finished saying that he gave grace to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift, he should have started verse 11, but he ten- went off on a tangent because he got so excited, and we'll talk about that. That's the Apostle Paul. That's his style of writing. So let's begin with two truths that we will see in this passage in verses 7 through 10. First one, are you serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gifts? Verse 7. And the second truth is found in verses 8 through 10. Are you surrendered to Christ's rule in your life? Let's look at the first heading. Are you serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gift? So Paul says in verse 7, Grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So as you look here, there's a transition from verses 1 through 6 into verse 7. And you see the conjunction, but. But grace was given. Like we see a shift. A transition from being united in one body. A unity, which is enabled by the unity in the Trinity as we had seen in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, now it comes to a diversity we see each individual member is now being talked about in verse 7. We see that in the Greek word akastos. It says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. To each one of us is the Greek word akastos which would mean each one separately, each separately But then Paul intensifies that by adding another Greek word, "ice" to it. So it's ekestos, heis. So in other words, what he's trying to say literally is that to each one of us separately. That's what he's saying. Instead of saying each separately, he says each one of us separately. So there is a unity, and yet he's saying there's a diversity out there. We have seen that all believers are one in Christ. We have seen that in verses 1 through 6. We are all one in respect of our salvation. In our relationship to God as children, we are adopted as a children. We are all one in Christ. But even though we are all one family, we are not identical. And this is the point that Paul has been stressing on so far about the Jew and the Gentile in one body, one new man, but still composed of of different individuals, different ethnicity, different background, different culture. We are all different. I root for the game of cricket in which the batsman hits the ball, runs to the opposite wicket. But he's still got his bat in his hand. There's another game called baseball. In which you run from base to base. I don't understand that. But as you run, you throw the bat away. You don't run with your bat. Which I did try once. It didn't go well. We are all diverse in the way we do things. But even though we are all diverse, we are all one in Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are all one in the matter of our salvation. We are all saved in the same manner. We are all saved through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is a sovereign work of God done in our lives. We are all belonging to God's family. We are all God's children. But although we are identical, it does not mean we are identical in every single aspect of the spiritual gift we have received. It includes variations. And these variations are seen in the unique spiritual gifts we are given. So having said that, every individual... And I say every individual will come to this. Every saved individual, everyone who is born into God's kingdom, has a spiritual gift. You have to be born again to get a spiritual gift. It's You have to be regenerated. You have to be saved in order to receive God's gift. So let's come back to verse 7. It says, but grace was given. The word grace is the Greek word charis. So here, Paul says, to each one, a grace gift was given. It does not refer to salvation. Uh, You need to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10, to understand the grace that he's talking about salvation. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the grace leading to salvation. But here, when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, but grace was given. That means that you were given a grace gift.
1: God is the one who is giving the grace gift. And you're given a grace gift to empower
0: you for ministry. By the way, when we talk about grace gifts, we're not talking talking about skill sets. We're not talking about talents. We're not talking about the skill that you have. Some people are skilled in music. Some people are skilled in, in, uh, in speaking. We're not talking about that. Not talking about natural abilities. We're talking about spiritual gifts. It's a gift given by the sovereign God. And, and everyone who is a believer has a spiritual gift. Come back to verse 7. It says, but grace was given. Was given, the verb is in the passive voice. Now, you know, when we talk about passive and active, passive voice, somebody else is doing the action. And so here, someone else is giving you the gift. And and when we look at who is the one giving us the gift, we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ giving us the gift keep going in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us, and we looked at each one of us, that is each one of us separately. There's a diversity there. How? According to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ is not only the giver of the gift, Christ also apportions the gift. Meaning, He allocates the gifts. He distributes the gifts. He determines the amount of gift which is given to each believer. Christ graciously and sovereignly bestows the gift to each believer within the local church. We'll look at this passage next week in detail, but just to kind of give you a glimpse of what that looks like, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And as you turn to Romans chapter 12... We see in verses 6 through 8 a passage, and it's all the way from verse 3 through 8. We talk about the gifts there. But I want to bring your attention to verse 11.
1: It says, Do not be, I'm sorry,
0: verse 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And as we look at that, that means each one has got a different gift. And now come back to verse 3. It says, "For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So in other words, God is the one who is giving the gifts to each one of us. Another place we can go to is 1 Peter chapter 1, and in 1 Peter chapter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And here again, I want to bring your attention to the start of verse 10. It says, as each one, as each of us, has received a gift. So each of us seated here has received a gift. As good stewards, use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we look at these passages, we find that a grace gift is given to each one of us. It's given by our sovereign Lord, and if you're a believer, you have received a gift. But there's also diversity in the gifts that you've received. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says there are varieties of gift, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There is a diversity in the spiritual gifts in spite of the unity that's found in the giver of the spiritual gift. In spite of the unity in the Trinity, when he gives out the gifts, there's a diversity in the gifts that are given to us. So we're given these gifts by the Holy Spirit for different purposes in the church. Each one of us receives a different gift. It's a gift given to us. You and I don't take a claim on the gift. You and I cannot say, well, I need that gift or I need this gift that rules out the charismatic moment of today when people are kind of demanding or thinking that's a gift that they need. It's a gift that is given to us in the body of Christ by the sovereign giver, God the Holy Spirit. And why? It's given to you so that you can function in the local church in a specific way. For example... In my physical body, I have the parts of my body. I've got the required members to function the way I want to function, or I have to function in my physical body. I've got my legs, I've got my feet, I've got my hands, I've got my fingers, I've got ears, nose, eyes, all the parts of my body. In order for me to proclaim the sermon, my brain needs to function. My eyes needs to function.
1: I need to be able to stand up here, so I need my feet to hold me up. Every part of my
0: body needs to cooperate with one another to function in the manner I ought to be functioning. For example, when my legs ache, my hands immediately stretches out, and what do I do? I massage my legs. My eyes are constantly looking for lurking danger as I walk around. My ears are constantly at my beck and call, ready to hear when someone calls me, especially my wife. Similarly, when I fall down, I stretch out my hand. Why do I stretch out my hand? I want someone to come alongside and pick me up. So there is a harmonious relationship between the parts of my body with each other. How foolish it would be for me to say I have enough of my own and I don't need the help of other members of my body. Let me come back to what John Calvin writes. He writes, Just like the parts of the body cannot live on its own. And what he means is, if you were to take off your hands and just put it on the side, what will happen to your hand? It will decay, deteriorate. It will only survive in a vital union with the rest of the body. So he says, just like the parts of the body cannot live on its own, we must perceive that each of us, that if each of us withdraws into his own solitude, he will soon be like a rotten member. For he can have no firm continuance in the whole body. If he insists on being separate from the rest of the members and what will follow from it, it is bound to perish. So in other words, if we decide that we are going to be different and we're going to live in solitude and we don't need anyone to survive or do ministry in this church, guess what's going to happen to the body? The body will deteriorate and decay. In other words, we all function in this body because God has all given us unique gifts. All of us, if you're a believer, has a unique gift given for the purpose, for the task of the
1: body to function in a harmonious manner. If any one person does not use... His or her gift, the body of Christ, is thrown out of tune. Let me explain that. You know how a
0: stringed instrument works. There are different kinds of guitars. There's a six-string guitar, a four-string guitar, a seven-string, an eight-string, a ten-string, a twelve-string guitar. There's also a fourteen-string guitar. Each string is there for a specific purpose and a specific tune. So if in a six-string guitar, if one string is out of sync, what happens to the guitar? The entire guitar suffers. In the same way, we all as a body need each other to function, and we ought to function together as one body with the gift that God has given each one of us. And what do we do if we struggle with another person who has a gift but is not acting mature? We saw that last Sunday. We got to come alongside them and pick them up and help them to be more like Christ.
1: I mean, the easy way out is to ignore that person, right? And just do ministry without the other person. But
0: that's not what we are to be doing. We are to work together as a well harmonized body. We have different gifts. Now not only do we have different gifts, they are given by the manifold grace of God. And let me help you understand what I mean by that. Would you please turn with me to first Peter?
1: First Peter Chapter four verse ten. As each has received a gift,
0: use it, right? Use it to do what? To serve one another. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's... You see that word? If you're reading from the NASB, it probably is reading manifold grace. ESV reads varied grace. That means multicolored, multifaceted uh, variety. That means God's grace, which is variegated, multicolored, multifaceted. What Peter says here is we have been given different grades, different grace gifts by God's multifaceted or multivariegated variegated. I can use that word grace, God's grace. It's a Greek word, poikilos. That means we have different gifts given in a different way by God's grace for a specific purpose and a specific time. Let me explain that further. Just kind of rabbit trailing off with an illustration. You probably come across people who are going through stage 3 or stage 4 cancer. And you talk to them. And there's something about them as a believer. I'm talking as a believer. Something about them that they are there to encourage you and help you. And you think about it it Says, how in the world are they going through this cancer and they are at peace about this? Well, God has given them a specific grace for that specific occasion, for that specific time, which you and I don't understand. It's
1: like a believer. Going to be with the Lord. And you look at that person and he is
0: totally at peace. You say, how in the world God gives him a dying grace? A grace that you and I cannot understand. It's God's poikilos grace, a manifold grace, a multifaceted grace. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here that God gives each one of us. A grace for a specific situation and a specific time. That means each one of years, us here, you may have the gift of giving, but another person has a gift of giving, but it's a different kind of a different gift of giving. Now we all ought to be givers, we ought to be a cheerful giver as we come into the church. Giving is commanded. But second Corinthians, I mean sorry, first Corinthians chapter twelve talks about a gift of giving. That means there are some people within the body of Christ who is able to go above and beyond what they normally give and give to the body of Christ. And there it says give, those who give, give with simplicity, meaning just give, don't put any conditions on it, just give. Some of you have the gift of hospitality, meaning you welcome strangers. You welcome visitors, and anybody who comes to the church, you feed them, you minister to them. In a way, it's just not possible for someone else. And, and just be hospitable if you have the gift of hospitality. I mean, instead of picking and choosing from you're going to be hospitable too, if you have the gift of hospitality, just be hospitable. Maybe you have the gift of administration. And you're willing to give your time and resources to help administer the the working of the church. Use your gift of administration as needed. I mean, you don't say, well, I'm only going to be involved in so-and-so ministry. I'll just wait for something to open up in that ministry. No, if you have the gift of
1: administration, you know it. Just make yourselves available to do what you're called to do. Or maybe you may say, well, I'm only going to be involved in a ministry. I have
0: the gift here, but I'm only going to be involved in this ministry if they're willing to accept everything I say. Well, that's not exercising the gift of ministry either, right? Or gift of help. Maybe you have the gift of helps. You serving people. The body of Christ knows who those people are in the church. All that takes is a phone call and they will be there to help you because they have the gift of help. Don't say, well, I'm willing to help so-and-so, but I'm not going to help so-and-so. That's not exercising the gift of help either. You see why? Because God has given you different gifts in this church to different individuals
1: to minister differently for a time that God has for you. So when we think about the gifts that is God's given you, John Calvin
0: writes, and I quote here, For the invariable object of all God's gift is to edify one another, that God's temple may grow among us and be reared among us until it reaches its full perfection. So that was our first heading. Let us be willing to serve the body of Christ with our spiritual gifts. Come back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And let me read that again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what are we supposed to do with the gifts? Serve the body of Christ. Whatever your gifts are, serve the body of Christ. Now, as we keep waiting and as you read that, okay, gifts. Now, I, I'm expecting the Apostle Paul to tell me what are our gifts? We all have gifts, right? What are the gifts? Paul doesn't get onto that till verse 11, and we have to wait till next Sunday to get onto that. But today, what he does is he is so excited that he talks about something else. It's a parenthetical statement. So let's look at that. Paul is now going to be talking about Christ. He spoke about Christ, he's speaking about a Savior, so thrilled he can't resist speaking about Christ. It's like you talk to me about my family, and I will start talking to you and answering your questions, and when you ask me about my wife, I get so excited that I'll start talking about her and explain everything about her. That's what Paul does here. He is so excited about Christ that when he said, according to the manifold grace... In verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift, he couldn't resist but talk about how Christ did what he did. It's like the hymn that we are saying, Jesus, the weary thought of thee with sweetness fills my soul. That's what Paul is excited about. He's breaking out in praise. So now let's look at verses 8, 9, and 10. And that's where we get our second heading. Are you surrendered to Christ's rule in your life? Verse 8 begins, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Before we start explaining what verse 8 is, I'd like to begin with verses 9 and 10. When we think about verses 9 and 10, 8, 9 and 10, this is taken out of the Old Testament book The psalm,
1: Psalm 68. So, would you please turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train,
0: and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So here, what Paul is doing is going into Psalm 68 and using it to bring about, make a point in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. What's going on in Psalm 68? In Psalm 68, King David... Is talking about the victory that God had given them in allowing them to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. Keep in mind that in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 6, if you read that and take time to read that when you go home, you will know the context, that the ark had gone out from Jerusalem. It was taken by the Philistines. And so now, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is actually bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. So it pictures God as having been victorious in helping the nation conquer their enemies and bring the ark back to where it's supposed to be. Then as the ark is coming back, there is the victory march. There is the captives all the prisoners and all the the loot that has been taken from the enemy, and it's now being brought into Jerusalem, and the ark is ascending up into Jerusalem, and as the ark is ascending up into Jerusalem, all these captives and everything that has come from the enemy is now being offered to God. So it's like God himself coming down, Helping the nation gain the victory. And as he helps the nation gains the victory, the offering is given back to God who is ascending up into heaven. Paul is taking this theme from Psalm 68 and applying it to Christ and the church. So Paul is alluding
1: to Christ when King David is alluding to Jehovah. Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, why is Paul doing it?
0: Well, there is often meanings. I mean, verses in the Old Testament that has got a double meaning in the New Testament. Help you see
1: one such verse? Would you please turn with me to First Corinthians, chapter ten, verses one through five. First Corinthians chapter ten, verses one through
0: five. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10, he's saying in the nation of Israel, as they were actually going through the wilderness, the rock that they drank from, that rock was Christ. So Paul is now giving it a meaning in the New Testament by saying what they did in the Old Testament, the rock from which they drank, that rock was Christ. If Paul would not have mentioned it, you and I wouldn't have known it. So Paul is giving it a meaning into the New Testament about an incident that happened in the Old Testament. In the same way, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is taking something that happened in the Old Testament and is giving it a meaning in the New Testament. Is that clear? Now let me also go back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have King David who is a prophet. And he is now making a declaration here in Psalm 68 verse 18. But it's like this. You've probably seen a sailor with his telescope. And he's standing in the ship, and he has his telescope, and he's looking through the telescope, and he's able to see things that are happening a little far away from him, very clearly. And that's exactly what King David is doing. He is, with his telescope, looking and explaining and saying, this is what God did into the nation of Israel. As he got us victory, he helped us get the captives, and he's now ascended up, and the gifts are given to him. But if you stretch out the telescope a little more further, you're able to see something into the far distance. And what you're seeing into the far distance is what Paul is bringing meaning to. In other words, what King David was doing was prophesying, but he was prophesying, which King David didn't really know, because if you stretched out the telescope, you would see into the distance that this is Christ, the Messiah,
1: fulfilling that prophecy. Okay? Now, let's come to Ephesians 4. As you look at Ephesians 4,
0: there's so much interpretation here. If you take commentaries, different commentaries give you different meanings and different interpretations. Instead of just going through different interpretations of this passage and tell you what those interpretations mean, let me just give you the correct view, which is my view. What is the meaning of the passage? Therefore, it says, it begins in verse 8, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. This is what it means. He descended from heaven. Now this is in verse 9. I'm going to pick up in verse 9 in saying that he descended from heaven into the lower region, which is the earth, this is exactly what it means. This is what we read in John chapter 3 verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That means you're talking about incarnation. God the Son descended, he became incarnate, he became, he grew up in Bethlehem, he was a babe, he came He was born among us. He descended. He became a man. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what it says is, Jesus Christ humbled himself, he became a man, he came to
1: earth, and then he went to the cross. Now let's go to verse 10. He who descended
0: is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. So when Christ came, he came to earth, he died on the cross, and as he died on the cross, he was buried, and he was resurrected the third day, and as he was resurrected the third day, we find that he ascended up into heaven. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, that as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. We read in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. So basically as he ascended. He is now the Lord of history. He is the king of kings. He is a sovereign God. He is the ruler of the world. He is all in all. So now having seen that verse 10 is talking about the ascendance, let's come, or of his ascent, let's come to verse 8. Verse 8 says, In saying, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also, I'm sorry, verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now there again, Many commentators give explanation after explanation to this specific verse. Again, let me give you what I think is the right view. So when he ascended on high, it says he led a host of captives. And this is where I want to share the gospel with you. And I'm saying intentionally sharing the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is essentially this. Gospel is not God loves you. The gospel is not God has a great plan for your life. The gospel is not God's going to make your life happy and wonderful and marvelously rich. And that you're going to have a BMW if you trust in Christ. And that you're not going to have any sickness in life. And God doesn't want you to be sick. And God doesn't want you to be unhappy. And God wants to give you peace. That's not the gospel.
1: What is the gospel? The gospel is this. That you and I were in sin.
0: Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Every one of us. There is not a single person on planet earth who can do anything right because everyone has sinned. That's why we are called sinners. And because we are sinners, Romans 3 says, there is no one who desires anything good. They do not desire God. They do not seek after God. Well, Make it clear. They do not desire God. They do not seek after God. No one. Nada. Not a single person. But here's the beauty of it. While we were sinners, while we were enslaved to Satan, while we were under the wrath of a holy God, while we were destined to judgment, and not just judgment where you just Die and knocked off and no one knows what's happening to you. It says you are into eternal destruction. That means you continue to live. I mean you live and you die and you die eternally forever and ever. That means you will never go out of existence. It's an eternal punishment. A life separated from God. A life enslaved to Satan. A life enslaved to the things of Satan. A life enslaved to the things of this world.
1: Unbelievers have no clue what God's will is for their life. They live their life by a moral code.
0: And who creates the moral code? They themselves. So if you talk to unbelievers, essentially everyone is good. Because they base their goodness on what they see around them. If people are good, if their people are compassionate, they say they're good. People are giving, they say they're good. Because their goodness is based on what they can see on a standard that they have created. But in God's sight, anyone who is a sinner is fallen and separated and alienated from God. But here's where the good news is. But God who is rich in mercy, in his great love towards us, he comes to earth, goes to the cross, dies on the cross for your sin and my sin. And goes up to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Now something happened as he went to the cross. When he went to the cross, he died for your sin. He changed, he, he put away the wrath of God from you. This is why when, when Christ was on the cross... The, the Bible reads that there was darkness on the face of the earth. The father turned his face away from his son because the sin of his people was put upon his son. And Christ on, the Christ on the cross called out, Tetelestai, it is over, it is finished. And this is what the gospel is. You need to recognize you're a sinner. And you need to recognize the only hope you have is to put your trust In Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. But at the same time, you and I cannot do it unless and until God regenerates us, He changes us, He opens our eyes. How do you do that? Cry out to God for mercy. And as you cry out to God for mercy, God will save you. He will give you the gift of faith. He will open your eyes to the truth of God's word. You will be able to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your mind, your thinking will change. You will start thinking like Christ. You will have the mind of Christ. You will fall in love with God's word. And you will want to live for him forever and ever. That's the gospel. Why did I share the gospel? Well, this is exactly what we need to understand as we are reading verse 8. When he ascended on high... He led a host of captives. Who are those captives? Well, the captives are all those things that you were once captive to. Whom were you captive to? To Satan. Whom were you captive to? To sin. Whom were you captive to? To the deeds of this world. To the affairs and the philosophy of this world. Whom were you captive to? To your own lifestyle. In fact, we read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of this world. You were captive to those things. Would you also turn of me to Colossians chapter 2.
1: It's the next book. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says, You who were once dead in your trespass
0: and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made life together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that means Satan and his fallen angels, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them the on the cross. So basically defeating Satan and his fallen angels. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Not only that, would you please turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2,
1: verses 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he
0: himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, That is the devil. And and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That means when he delivered us, when he saved us, he delivered us from lifelong slavery to Satan and to death. And now those things have become captive. Christ has taken them captive. He has defeated death. He has defeated Satan on the cross, and we are no longer captive to Satan, we are no longer captive to sin, we are no longer captive to death, but now we are let free. And now Jesus is taking them captive. So come back to Ephesians chapter 4 please, verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Who are those captives? Satan, sin, and death. He led a host of captives. And in the process, what did he do? He gave gifts to men. And what are the gifts that he gave to men? We started off in verse 7. The gifts,
1: the spiritual gifts. The gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to the church. The second heading was very simple. Have you
0: submitted yourself? Have you submitted to the sovereignty of Christ? Are you surrendered to Christ's rule in your life? If you and I are surrendered to Christ's rule in your life, you're recognizing that what Christ on the cross is true. You're recognizing that Christ is your only Lord. You're recognizing that you don't have any other Lord other than Christ. You're recognizing that He is the King of Kings. You're recognizing that He's the captain of your salvation. You're recognizing that He is all in all. And exactly, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. At the end of verse 10, he says, He who descended is the one who ascended above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He is sovereign God. He sits at the right hand of God the Father... And he is ruling the entire universe. And as he went up into heaven, he gave men spiritual gifts. And you and I are now recipients of that spiritual gifts. As he took his captive, as he conquered Satan, as he conquered death, as he conquered sin, he has now given us gifts. What are you doing with those gifts? Are you serving him? You are obligated to serve him. And if you're not now belonging to Christ, that means you're still in captivity. And to whom are you in captivity? To Satan. You're in captivity to death. You're in captivity to sin. Slavery to sin. And I pray that God would help you understand that Christ died for your sin. Do you believe in that? If you believe in that, have you trusted Him as your Lord and your Savior? Have you given your life over to Him? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or come up front. That's not what we do. I want you to go home. And I tell people, put yourself, lock yourself up in a room, fall on your knees, and cry out to God. Tell God that you're a sinner. Tell God that you need Him. Tell God He need, you need salvation. Tell God to open your eyes, to give you the gift of faith. And he, the promise of the scriptures, if you cry out to Him, He will save you. He will save. He saved Paul, the uttermost of sinners. He was the chief of the sinners. He saved me. And if He can save me, He can save you. Do you know Christ? The only way you can be a member of a local church... The visible church is if you're a believer. And if you are a believer, guess what? You have a spiritual gift. Because that's what Christ did as he went up into heaven. He gave gifts to men. Which men means men and women. All of us. And if you are a gift believer, are you using your spiritual gifts? Is this church, family heritage church, out of tune? Because someone's not using the gifts the way God wants them
1: to use it. We are out of tune if you're not using your gift. So I pray that God would do that work
0: in your heart today. That we would commit ourselves, a fresh commitment to the local church. To Jesus Christ, his local body, a fresh commitment. Say, Lord, I want to be a member of the church And I want to serve in the church with the gift that you've given me. Let's do that as we go home today. Cry out to God. Father, we thank you that you have given us this beautiful passage. Which, Lord, we know we could read it and take it a thousand ways. But, Father, we thank you for clarifying to us that it's talking about your incarnation. Your ascension. You defeating Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And you, as you went up to heaven, you gave us gifts. Thank you for the gifts that we have received. Father, we thank you for giving us a spiritual gift. Help us to understand that spiritual gift. And help us to use it for your glory and for your honor. And if there are any out here who are still not saved, they do not know Jesus Christ. Maybe they know Christ, but they do not know you personally. That you would do a work in their lives. That today would be the day of salvation. That they would cry out to you for mercy. And that you would save them. And save them Lord to eternal life. Thank you Lord for this day again. In Jesus name we pray. And all God's children say. Amen.